This week on the show, we manipulate a ZFS pool from the rescue system, FreeBSD third quarter, status report we're reading to you, monitoring FreeBSD jails from the host, OpenBSD on the Raspberry Pi 4 with full disk encryption, Odin wards with OpenBSD and some upgrades that area and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 430, OpenBSD onwards, recorded on the 17th of November 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backup for the truly paranoids. If you want to support this show, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash bsdnow in case you want to put something in our little tip jar or want to enjoy episodes without ads. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Welcome to this episode. We have brand new stories for you from the BSD world. And the first one is about saving your neck when it's uh, going to get tight, uh, going from recovery mode to normal operations with OpenZFS, manipulating a pool from the rescue system over at Clara Systems. So they start with a, a rather long title, but everyone should get what this is about. So in case disaster strikes, there is help available. So they start with, we've all been there. That moment of panic when a system fails to boot back up. Perhaps there was a glitch with an upgrade. Maybe you're wondering if you fumble-fingered a typo when you made that last change to loader.conf. But there you are, staring at single-user mode, or worse, the bootloader prompt, thinking, what now? Fortunately, FreeBSD and its built-in rescue mechanisms have you covered. Barring a truly catastrophic hardware failure, it is possible to quickly recover from most scenarios that prevent a system from booting into normal operation. And if you're using OpenZFS, you can rest assured that your data is intact. Let's look at some common recovery scenarios. First one is a single user mode. If a system starts to boot normally, but stops with this prompt after probing the disks, you're in single user mode and you get the more or less familiar uh, prompt enter full path name of shell or return for bin sh. In this mode, there's only one user, the super user and no authentication, no networking or running daemons and most file systems are unmounted. While that sounds rather dire, the mode provides the tools needed to repair whatever is preventing the system from completing the booting process. So start by pressing enter because that's how you pick the shell. Uh, if you get a hash prompt, you're now in the born shell. Next, see your if your OpenZFS pools are mounted, enter mount. So that's uh, indicating what kind of file systems are mounted at the moment. And if you're on ZFS root, then at least that pool uh, data set should show up. In this example, only the root dataset of the zroot pool is mounted and is mounted as read-only. Good to know. This means if uh, you try a command such as vi etcrc.conf, you will receive a read-only file system error. To uh, remedy this, you need to unset the read-only property by using zfs set read minus only equals off on zroot or whatever pool you name you chose. Then you mount all the file systems with zfs mount dash a. And then rerunning mount should confirm that these are now uh, writable. Then, when finished uh, or made any configuration changes you need to do, then you can uh, save those now that they are writable. And when finished, type exit. If your changes were successful, the system will continue to boot into normal mode or normal operation. Next is the rescue utilities. When 
those need to be run. Since it's possible that the base utilities themselves, such as SH, mount, or VI, could become corrupt, FreeBSD provides a slash rescue directory containing statically linked versions of these utilities. This means that if a single user mode system is too damaged to enter the born shell, you can type slash rescue slash SH, and that should give you a shell. And then you can use the uh, commands as usual, but with a single twist. Um, if you cannot open the VI editor, you need to edit, for example, uh, rc.conf with it. Try this, slash rescue, slash vi, slash etc, slash rc.conf. So you need to always provide the rescue in front. And if that even fails, even if VR, vi can't be started, then you need to go to the venerable ed editor. So it's slash sq, uh, rescue, slash ed. And then you're in real trouble. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, but there's ed mastery by Michael W. Lucas. And then you should be fine getting into the editor, making changes, and also exiting again. And then you think BI is a godsend. Um, yeah, and if you do NLS on rescue, then you can see what other utilities are available. Next, the mount root prompt. If a system uh, boot experiences an, yeah, ex an issue when mounting the root file system, it will stop at a prompt which looks like this, mount root, and then greater than sign. That's not very welcoming, and it surely is not. If you suspect that a system is attempting to mount the root pool location, you can input the correct location at this prompt, which, for example, points ZFS to the location of a default FreeBSD installation, where ZRoot is the pool name, root is the parent data set, and default is the default boot environment. So then you would enter ZFS colon ZRoot slash root, all caps, and then slash default. However, that command will fail if the problem isn't the location, but rather that the required kernel modules were not loaded, which brings us to the next one, the bootloader prompt. So it's getting earlier and earlier in the boot sequence. Uh, here you see the prompt uh, exiting menu, type question mark for a list of commands, help for more detailed help, and then in a prompt that says okay. And surely that's okay for you maybe, but uh, here you have a very basic uh, single uh, environment here. Uh, and the commands at this prompt are pretty much limited to the ones that uh, the boot system, the bootloader provides. Uh, you can start by unloading any loaded modules and reload the kernel, for example, by saying unload, and the system will always confirm with OK in case the command is correct. And then maybe uh, load slash boot slash kernel slash kernel or kernel.old, for example, if you want to reboot the old one. Then load the open Solaris and ZFS kernel modules. They end with that .ko for kernel object. And then the ZFS system should be able to load other uh, pools or other data sets there. If you get errors there with the load commands and the boot failure towards a system upgrade, you can instead try loading the previous version. Like I said, this is now in boot slash kernel.old. And there you find the old kernels. And then once those are loaded, then enter boot at that prompt and the system should hopefully come up again. Then there are sections on the mounting a boot environment and from a live USB, but uh, they also detail how to fix those. We leave that up to you to read the rest of that. And maybe you want to bookmark this article in case disaster strikes and you need to get the system quickly back up. There you have the basics to get those running again. I, I think of all of these, mount root is the, is the least friendly of the prompts because- It is, yeah. There's not even any kind of tap completion. And, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I built a, I rebuilt current today and rebooted it. And um, I think the ZFS kernel module was broken for one commit, which is the one I built. Mm. And uh, I sat at mount root. I don't know what to do at mount root. Then you are there, yeah, and you try to 
fig figure out what do I need to enter and where does the colon go? And yeah, I, I, I just type stuff until the system panics and then you can power cycle it. I think Mantbrook could really do with a reboot command. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think they're still working on this. I mean, this is very basic as an environment because at this point in the system, there's not much available. But hopefully uh, a little bit of user friendliness, even in this rescue environment, is uh, helping users. Yeah, next up, we have a, an article from Dan Langle from, on his blog, um, Monitoring FreeBSD Jails from the Host. Dan writes, it was May 2021 when I tweeted about monitoring FreeBSD jails, which had jail IP addresses only in the 127-8 range. Yesterday, nearly six months later, I did the first test of this. This came up because I'm getting a new, a new fresh ports node ready. I created a file in the jail to be run from the host. The script runs in the jail, but it is initiated by a process on the host. So in this post, there's FreeBSD 13, Nagios point. Uh, 3.5.1, NRP 3.2.1, um, Ingress, which is a jail processing commits to FreeBSD, and uh, a custom directory for Nagios scripts. Uh, the usual situation, in the past, each of my jails has a RFC 1918 IP address. Um, so that's like um, 10.0.0.2 or 192.168. Um, is there another one? Um, and net management NRP3 runs within the jail. Nagios running on his web server connects, contacts the jail via port 5666, where NANRP3 is listening. NANRP3 runs a script, which is installed on the jail and sends results back to Nagios. Uh, what will be different? The jails will have IP addresses in the 127.0.0.0 slash 8 range, uh, e.g. 127.63.0.10, the main difference is what Nagios contacts. Instead of contacting the jail, it will contact the host. Uh, NRPE on the host will use JEXEC to run a script located in the jail. Uh, proof of concept. Um, and so he has a proof of concept here, and he starts with uh, ingress01 jail, um, which he said before is the git commit processor for FreeBSD. So Freshports um, reads in the git um, FreeBSD commits as they happen uh, to the ports tree so it can track what's going on just for a little bit of context. Uh, and he set up the loopback interface in the ingress01 jail uh, with the IP address 127.163.0.10. Uh, all the monitoring scripts re required for the jail exist, uh, are already installed in the jail. Uh, and there is a script, um, check fresh ports online. Um, and the script looks like um, very simple. It, checks for the presence of a file and it reports the the status uh, if the file is there or not. Um, this script just checks the existence of a file, which I think should be over in slash var slash db slash fresh ports, not slash user slash website slash fresh ports.org slash scripts, but that fixes for another day. I run that script over here in the jail and he runs a script and it says it's okay. The key to this proof of concept is to be able to run those scripts from the host and he tried the next command, um, so the first command was inside the jail. The next command is from the host. And he runs it again, and it all checks OK. And because it all checks, if the check can be run on the host, this approach should work. Uh, he says, hold on, that's not quite the same. While writing this, I realized the above test did not replicate usually what usually happens in my jails. When nenrpe runs, it runs as the Nagios user. The jexec command runs it as root. We could run all our checks as root, but that's less than ideal because it opens up more security area. 
They're already designed to run as Nagios. For security and less work, let's run them as Nagios. Here is the same command for running um, as the right user. And so he uses sudo jxec dash capital U Nagios, and he runs the script in the jail again. Uh, the dash capital U specifies the username from the jailed environment as whom the command should run, which means that when you run jexec, it moves into the jailed environment and looks up who the user should be rather than using the user from outside the jailed environment, which you can also do. Um, the real question is why not run this as Nagios? The real question is why would you run this as root? The jexec command is being invoked on the host as the, as the Nagios user, which will need pseudo permissions. The permissions will be strict and specify the full command which can be run. There is no need to run this as root in the jail. The script could be modified to run on the host using the jail PID. However, all these scripts were designed to run in a jail as Nagios. Being consistent with the scripts whenever running them, whether running them in the host or the jail is my preferred approach, which, yeah. And he shows the NRP configuration on the host. Um, which is just an includer directive. And he creates a config file and then he sets up pseudo permissions and then he shows us the full jail configuration. And so this is not yet deployed. So far, this is only a proof of concept, but I plan to deploy it to monitor all three jails on this host. What will pessimists say? They say this doesn't scale. You will need the same command slightly different for each jail if each jail needs to monitor the same thing the NRP configuration will need to be, will need to differentiate them, something like, and then he gives an example with quite a long command for each of these. Um, this is not difficult to do. It's not repetitive, but not difficult. I'll get started on deploying this as soon as I can. Okay, interesting. So I'm mostly using Isinga, the successor if you want, but Nagios is still widely deployed and uh, yeah, users could use this to monitor their jail environments. News Roundup this week has the FreeBSD quarterly status report in the third quarter of 2021. That's always a big news item. So we should uh, not cover it all, but at least the most interesting bits that we found. Uh, the rest, of course, is up to you to read. So and we have an intro by Daniel Ebdrop Jensen with his status hat because he's been compiling these reports. And this is always a lot of work, so it's appreciated. The report covers FreeBSD rated projects for the period between July and September and is the third of four planned reports for 2021 with 42 entries. The third quarter of 2021 was quite active in lots of different areas. So the report covers a bunch of interesting work, including, but not limited to, boot performance, compile time analysis, hole punching support, various drivers, ZFS RAID Z expansion, an update to the sound mixer and many more. Regrettably, the status report got a bit delayed but we hope that the aphorism better late than never can apply here. Okay, so first they start off with the uh, team reports. So they have reports from the FreeBSD Foundation, the release engineering team, cluster admins, the continuous integration folks, reports collection, the documentation engineering team, and the FreeBSD website revamp, uh, because there is a web apps working group. Then there's a section on projects. Uh, he mentioned already the boot performance improvements. I guess a lot of people would be excited about those. Uh, Git migration working group and LLDB debugger improvements, Linux compatibility layer updates from SoundMixer improvements and base system OpenSSH update. Then there's a section on the kernel. There are improvements in ARM64 listed on Microsoft Hyper-V and Azure FreeBSDs uh, updates there. 
improved AMD64 UEFI boot. That's also interesting. The ENA FreeBSD driver update, that's the elastic network adapter of uh, Amazon EC2, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah. Then there's the hole punching support uh, with Intel networking and Intel wireless driver support. Uh, some LAN microchip updates, device drivers, fixes for MS-DOS rename VOP. Oh, cool. Uh, OpenZFS Red Z expansion update, uh, some other updates, and oh yes, then there's a section on ports, always big because well, ports are big and a lot of people are working on those, which is appreciated. For example, KDE on FreeBSD, OpenSearch on FreeBSD, Wine on FreeBSD, and many others uh, help keep FreeBSD useful in having third-party software readily available and up-to-date. Miscellaneous section reads a that current compilation time analysis so that people can see where the bottlenecks are. Uh, and then third-party projects lists GitLab 14.3 available, Hello System, containers in FreeBSD uh, with pot, Potluck and Potman, as well as WireGuard on FreeBSD that stabilizes and has eyes up streaming. So yeah, we encourage you to look at individual reports. The one that strike me as interesting are of course the boot performance improvements uh colin percival mentioned this on twitter a couple of times and he blogged about this and so in the status report he provides the most important uh, items here yeah i mean so he did <laughs> he, he he took it down by um nearly 10 seconds or he, he says uh 9,790 milliseconds of time has been shaved off the boot process taking it down to approximately 15 seconds mm-hmm and I think there's still work. I mean, there's the kernel part and there's the userland part, but already it's quite fast. He did it mostly on uh, EC2, but this also applies to your general workstation, your embedded system even, or wherever FreeBSD runs this uh, modern kernel. Yeah, and, and his, his tools don't support um, user space yet, where they're just starting to. And so I think there's more low-hanging fruit. I've heard that uh, RTSoldD takes two or three seconds like it has weights so mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of time still so we can get even faster to boot yeah many of these are historic uh, for historical reasons uh, but nowadays um, we can improve a little bit there shaving off some assumptions that are not no longer true and that way uh, the system will boot up faster i mean that for people who don't reboot their systems very often that's uh, not a big surprise but i guess people will always enjoy having their system back uh, able to log in to it uh, sooner rather than later yeah i mean there was there was a thing maybe like 10 years ago where linux distros tried to speed up and you got like specialized distros that could boot in one second mm. uh, but that's not what colin's doing colin is trimming out the the normal ec2 server image uh, i know we were slower than a lot of Linux distros to begin with, but I think we're now going to be faster. And if this is normal FreeBSD. This isn't trimmed down FreeBSD at all. This is just what we ship. So it's really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we're looking forward to that. Uh, he always provides these nice little uh, diagrams. What are they called? The flame graphs. And there you can definitely see how performance analysis is done and where you can visualize where the bottlenecks are and where the people can still uh, improve or provide improvements so check out the whole article or the whole report it's well worth the read in many of these areas that are interesting to uh, specific parts of the system but also overall people are uh, always demonstrating that uh, they are actively working on freebsd in many areas and that is a nice way of showing that the project is alive okay next in the news we have uh, openbsd on the raspberry pi 4 with full disk encryption and this is on 
matecha.net, which I hope I have said correctly. After some effort, I don't know who this person is. Uh, after some effort, I got my Raspberry Pi 4 running OpenBSD 6.9 with full disk encryption on a USB 3 memory stick. I could find no one else talking about this subject anywhere except this mailing list thread. So I thought I'd share my experience on how I got it working. I recommend you read the entire post before proceeding so you have an idea of the process up front. And they have a quick note saying, since OpenBSD 7.0 has been released, I haven't yet updated the instructions to make sure they apply 100%, but I believe the process should succeed without modification. So setup, enabling USB, enabling booting from USB. First, we want to make sure the Raspberry Pi 4 can boot from USB storage. The newer Pi 4 boards already have a recent enough EEPROM version supporting USB boot, but earlier shipped boards will need an update. If your Pi can boot from USB stick, you can skip this step. And they give the instructions to do this from Raspbian. Um, setting the boot order needs to be done from Raspbian as well. So from Raspbian, you need to run sudo raspi config and go to advanced settings, boot order, and select boot from USB. And I think that's where they hide the boot from network option too. Um, to do the OpenBSD installation, you need to download the ARM64 install 69.img and write it to a USB stick. This USB stick will be used for the installation process, so don't worry about using a new or fast device. Boot from this USB stick and USB port 2. You can see uh, you can use a USB 3 port if you think there will be room to fit your destination USB 3 device, but, my, but mine was too large to fit both at the same time. At the boot prompt, enter set TTY FB0, then boot. Setting TTY to FB0 is important so you can actually see the console. Once the OpenBSD installer is started, insert your destination USB stick into USB 3 port. Go to the shell and complete a FTE setup. I followed the process as described in uh, OpenBSD docs, booting from MBR. So I ran fdisk-iysd1 because my USB 3 destination media is in the second drives. It's SD1 rather than SDO. Uh, so obviously I did everything on SD1 rather than SDO. I did everything as the doc said, including writing slash dev slash random to slash dev slash RSD1C. And I used a password instead of a key disk just to keep it simple. Once you're done, run exit to leave the shell and return to the OpenBSD installer. Complete the OS installation. I just used the default partition table I installed to slash dev slash SD2 because that's the new decrypted drive that appears. But once the installation is complete, shut down and unplug all USB devices, booting the newly installed system. Now here's the interesting part. Because the OS drive is encrypted, the Pi can't boot directly from it. You will get a blank screen and the rainbow screen, which is the GPU and the Raspberry Pi's uh, like test firmware, never shows. Uh, the Pi needs a non-encrypted drive to read the OpenDSD bootloader boot AA64 from. As the kernel unfortunately cannot be booted from the Pi 4's EEPROM hosted bootloader, as explained by OpenBSD developer Brian Steele on Reddit, I asked around for a bit and some helpful people on the OpenBSD Matrix channel shared enough knowledge and insight to elucidate a solution. Here's one way to do it which worked for me. Write uh, the ARM64 mini root IMG to a microSD card. The, Pi will, the microSD card will stay in the Pi forever. Before doing anything with the microSD card, you need to update the boot order, um, boot the Pi with Raspberry and USB stick, run uh, the Raspberry Pi, run Raspberry Pi config, advanced options boot order, and set the microSD card boot priority to be first. Insert the mini root microSD card in the microSD slot and the and on an encrypted USB stick for the SSD into the USB 3 port. Power it up. At the boot prompt, remember to set STTY FB0. 
and then set device SR0A, which is the encrypted drive. They're, they're not sure if this is different if you're using Keydisk, however. Uh, type boot and press enter, and now it should boot up. The bootloader should ask you for the software and passphrase now. Once you enter it successfully, it will boot from the BSD kernel. Okay, at this point, now you'll be waiting a long time. Booting the kernel from crypto software takes literally 18 minutes for me. It's absolutely Ooh. nuts. Maybe it will be faster on SSD, but I think the Pi CPU struggles with AES encryption without some kernel driver. Maybe it's possible to load a driver from the micro SD card before trying to load the OS kernel from encrypted drive. Definitely something to investigate further. There's one more step to make the experience better though. No one wants to type set, FTT, set TTY FB0 and set device SR0A every time, right? It took me a while to figure this out, but I realized mount the micro SD card and add slash etc slash boot.conf to it. it. If that, it doesn't work when boot.conf is on the encrypted drive, because it's encrypted, it has to be on the actual initial boot device, the micro SD. So to do this, boot into your encrypted system with the above process, um, log in, open a shell, and then they mount the SD card and copy over boot.conf. They add their two lines that they've been typing at the prompt and reboot, and now it should work. Um, you can try rebooting and make sure it works, but no, no real need to waste 18 minutes on that right now, unless you want to be sure, which I think is good advice. Um, I think that's everything. You should have a working OpenBSD install on your Pi 4 with full disk encryption. Uh, if you're struggling with this process, feel free to ping me. I may be able to help a bit. Though knowing the 18 minute boot time, maybe it's not worth it for FD on my Pi 4. Still a fun project and very cool to have this working. Yeah, I think it's a great project. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very nice. And staying with OpenBSD a little bit longer, we have the catch up of OpenBSD on Undeadly Org. Uh, so that's from the uh, from the third of uh, well November, and they had they have some interesting developments listed in current from OpenBSD 7.0 onwards. Uh, for example, the wireless drivers IWM and IWX are now supporting four megahertz channels. They are uh, having commits there as reference. So on OpenBSD Tech, Stefan Sperling has requested testing of a diff to add such support to IWM as well. A real path utility was added, largely for the benefit of porters. Then SCP, as we probably reported, uh, I think I remember mentioning this, uh, SCP has swapped back to using the SFTP protocol by default, and they are uh, using this onward from there. The implementations of poll, select, ppoll, and pselect were uh, changed to be based on KQ. HTTPD has gained support for custom error pages, so you can design them to your own liking. Uh, then syscall K events has been unlocked, so that is one less lock to worry about. Then there's the net slash VPNC scripts port that has gained support for ResolveD, OpenBSD's new resolver. Uh, then the HWPerf policies cuddle is now set to auto by default at startup and there's a commit message detailing why that is let me check that real quick um ah it's because of ac power connection yeah yeah uh, that makes sense mm -hmm. then uh igc a driver for intel's 2.5 gigabits ethernet controller has been added and mouse tracking is now disabled by default in Xterm, setting X the X resource allow mouse ops to true or translate to the earlier behavior. Okay, that should be a nice addition to your OpenBSD toolbox. Let's get right into the beastie bits here. 
we have a nice YouTube video uh, about managing Kubernetes cluster from FreeBSD with kubectl or kubectl. Kube control. Uh, that it is the, yeah, kube control. Kube, is it kube control? Kube yeah. control. Well, it's a K. <laughs> yeah. So that's a nice watch because that shows that's also uh, FreeBSD is not completely away from the whole clustering in Kubernetes game. Then uh, AMD GPU support in Dragonfly BSD has landed. And there's an article on Dragonfly BSD Digest about it, which details uh, a little bit more. Uh, that's the AMD GPU driver equivalent to the Linux version 4.19 has been committed along with supporting changes in TTM. Uh, credit there goes to Sergei Zigashev. Hopefully that's correct. Uh, Francois Tijon and Matthew Dillon for the work. Yeah, those people, <laughs> we know those. The module is now built by default in Bleeding Edge Dragonfly and note that the AMD GPU commit message lists some options that need to be set. Okay, that's good so that people can enjoy a bit more modern graphics. And last up, we have a, a tweet from Warner Losch um, on the, the 3rd of November. Today is the 50th anniversary of the first edition of Unix. It was targeted at the PDP 11 slash 20 with eight kilowords, which is what KW stands for, of memory um, at 16,384 bytes. And he tweeted a picture of the cover of the Unix programmer's manual from the 3rd of November, 1971, making Unix 19 years older than me. Yeah, that, yeah. It's definitely had its uh, history or has still, we're still advancing it. And it's quite nice to see that it's uh, been a while. It's still live and kicking. It's just amazing each time to see. And I mean, the, just the history alone is well worth mentioning. And uh, yeah, oh yeah, and the follow-ups people have posted uh, pictures and you know all kinds of old computers. Yeah, and computers. it was it was crazy seeing the range of people that I follow on Twitter retweeting like Warner for days afterwards. Um, what I remember is Charles Strauss, the the fiction writer, retweeting Warner, which I thought was a weird like merging of realities. <laughs> And I guess, yeah, if people have been around longer or with Unix, grew up with Unix maybe, uh, then it's certainly something to celebrate. Uh, before we get into our feedback and questions this week, we should mention our sponsor this week, Tarsnap, our venerable backup solution for online uh, backups, but also very paranoid in the sense that people typically don't trust their backup solution because there could very well be someone uh, at the backup site, taking their readable snapshots or whatever they back up their real files and grab it and read it unencrypted. Tarsnap has a whole different approach. You increase, you encrypt the files locally before they ever leave your computer. And so the only things that are stored in the cloud or on the backup servers that make up the Tarsnap uh, service in this case are only encrypted parts. So that is done locally. It also deduplicates your data so that there's nothing uh, redundant going into the cloud, which needs just extra space. And it's also compressed so that it's even less than before. And once you download the backups again with your personal key, because that gives you your readable files back, uh, the process is done in reverse. So it's uncompressed and undeduplicated. Is, is that a word? It's duplicated again. <laughs> and, and then you have your real data back. And in case if disaster strikes, you were happy that you did this regularly, maybe from a cron job, because it's very easy. It's very similar to tar because it's built on that. And it just adds the tar snap bits for the encryption and some 
uh, extra data that is typically done in the background for the um, finding unique blocks and the compression and stuff like that. Check out Tarsnap has a very uh, challenging pricing model. You start low. Oh, two weeks ago, I got the message. Hey, your account is running low. Uh, please charge something up or uh, your files will be not available anymore. So I charged up my account. I started with maybe $10 at the beginning of the year and I had a little bit more backups in recent uh, days. So that, of course, counted towards my quota, but it's still less than what other providers would uh, task you or would put on your bill. So it's pay as you go, only you get the stuff that you have already paid into your account. And then before it runs out, uh, Tarsnap sends you an email so that you can charge up again. And it's very competitive what kind of uh, pricing they have. Uh, check out also the documentation and some of the technical details on the website. And you will find that Tarsnap is very uh, easy to use and is available on many of the Unix operating systems, no matter whether they are a BSD, a Linux, a Mac OS, or even a Windows subsystem for Windows or Linux subsystem for Windows more like. And so no reason to not make backups and make them early because disaster could strike any second. Okay. Here we are in our feedback and questions section. Uh, we should mention that we plan to do a special episode around Christmas uh, with you, the audience, interviewing us. But if we don't get questions, and I'm hearing we don't have money at the moment, uh, you can send us your questions to feedback at bstnow.tv. And then in this special episode, once we have enough of those, we will answer them. And that's probably a good way of you knowing a little bit more about the people behind the show or in front or behind the microphone. And so if you are interested in that, send us your questions. You can also send us regular questions, of course. Uh, for example, like Evraim did with a question about response to IPFS in an overlay file system. Ah, this replies to an earlier episode. So that reads, uh, in response to Jack's email in episode 426 about having a self-replicating file system on top of ZFS. Ah, it's a, uh, yeah, I remember this one. The quick answer I can think of is sync thing. Selective sync will keep certain machines from trying to use more space than they have and satisfies Jack's requirement to be able to copy raw files back if the replication system fails. In relation to the mention of Lizard FS, uh, I set up Lizard FS on a small HPC cluster at work, just 11 machines. Yeah, well, what you have around. Uh, my reasoning <laughs> is that. First, not all machines have the number uh, or the same number of drives or of the same size or add new drives at the same rate. So Ceph wasn't going to work for us. The second reason, the head node for the cluster is also the head node for the Lizard FS system. If the head node goes down, we're not computing until it's back up, but anyway, but our fallback scheduling node is also our fallback LizardFS head node. Uh -huh. Third, file access is available through the LizardFS mount points on each local machine or through an NFS export in Samba share. Uh, file reads isn't slower than network access, although depending on your file replication plan, writes can be very fast or very slow. Uh, it doesn't have the option of straight copying of files if the system fails, but it's been working great at work long enough so that my wife is willing to let me set it up at home too. Okay. Uh, okay. Then. Yeah, it's hmm, a possibility. Yeah, sync thing. It's an interesting approach. Um, I, I don't know if the answer there was about LizardFS or sync thing though. Yeah, they set up LizardFS on a, on a small HPC cluster. Mm. Um, yeah, it's uh, okay. an option there, yeah. Depending on what your requirements are, yeah. if you're really making the self-replication to focus, then... Yeah, so my option. so my friend Tony, who, who lends me computers sometimes, um, like right now, um, has a, a bioinformatics cluster that runs LizardFS. 
because he's he's dealing with data um, and the volumes he can't economically back it up, and so he has live replication mm. um, because he's dealing with like DNA sequences, and he's living this uh, dual reality where he wants to have as much storage as possible online, uh, but he also wants to not use loads of compute power all the time. And LizardFS mm -hmm. just doesn't work there because when you take hosts out of the replication cluster, they're they're gone. And so the replication workload changes and the distribution of disks, disks changes and so does the available space. So yeah, it's, mm -hmm. I, I don't think he's a normal case though. Not everyone's running their, their HPC <laughs> cluster in their garage. Right. Uh, I'm completely new to LizardFS, never heard about it, um, but should look at it. Maybe it's uh, having some interesting properties. Yeah, it, it's pretty cool. It's a good way to build a, a, a virtual store over a, a set of machines. I don't know if it runs on FreeBSD, though. Mm, okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, that, that kind of kills it. But, uh, yeah. well, <laughs> at work, I also have some Linux machines. Uh, so, yeah, it's always good to know about options. And, and I mean, it's difficult to describe ZFS as only a hammer. Um, but <laughs> it's a it's a hammer that can keep a lot of uh, yeah, yeah. problems in check. Exactly. So next but up, we have other a... things left and right. Yeah. <laughs> so so next up, we have a, a question from Paul. It's an FS send question. Paul writes, "I'm working on backup solution for my system. Unfortunately, ZFS send is not an option for me. So I use classical approach: take snapshots, mount them, and then backup as files. But if it appears to be way more problematic than it seems. Problem one, all backup snapshots need to be created at exactly the same time. Backup snapshots should present system at a state similar to the state after a sudden power off. So it can't be achieved by a shell script creating snapshots one by one. Snapshots will be created in slightly different moments, but it seems that using uh, ZFS program, I don't know if that's a typo, uh, it can be done as operations done by ZFS program are atomic, I'm not sure about ZFS create dash R pool at snapshot. Is that atomic too? My problem is how do I do it for data sets on different pools? Is there a way to create instantaneous snapshots on multiple pools? ZFS program does not help here. Do you have any oh, ideas? Channel programs. Ah. He, meant, he means the channel programs where you, I haven't used them, uh, but you can basically define what ZFS should execute in which order. And I think they, those are atomic enough to warrant that. I mean, depending on the amount of work it has to be done, it can never be that atomic because time passes. But you can definitely decide uh, what should be done in ZFS using these uh, channel programs. Alan would know more about this. Can it, uh, can it work on different pools or do you not know? Good question. If it's cross-pool or based on uh, or limited to each pool, well, limited is kind of a <laughs> wrong word there. Um, but I think it's possible. I would have to Google that. But um, as far as I know, you can definitely say, okay, when this snapshot happens, do these five other things as well, and then delete the snapshot or whatever. So it's all happening as though it was part of this normal ZFS operation. Okay, Paul's problem two, ZVols, how to expose them to backup program. Is there a way to create different device file pointing to each snapshot? I can also just use ZFS send to send data to file and back it up, but this is highly inefficient. Is there a better approach? And and last question, why even single snapshot on ZVol doubles disk use used is twice as big as referenced even when single snapshot exists? Um, That could be probably the type of the Z vault. So there's sparse Z vaults and uh, what are the other ones? Uh... 
not sparse. <laughs> uh, so the sparse ones fill up. So you say this is a volume of, let's say, 100 gigs. And then it starts very, very tiny. And the more data you store there, it's growing and growing until it's reaching the 10 gigs. And the non-sparse one, they allocate the space right right away. So it's deduced or reduced from the pool already. Um, but it's still a fixed size, right, in each case, because you always have to define that when you're running the zpool create dash capital V or Z, ZFS create capital V. Uh, the space is probably, it needs to allocate that space already so that it accounts for it in case you do a snapshot. So it's reasonable that you probably started with a sparse one and ZFS needs to preserve that space already. So when you snapshot it, it needs to always have that maneuverability, as I would say, uh, to have this. So it's probably easier, um, when that's compressed maybe because the it's not filled up with uh, with any useful uh it's probably zeros or ones i'm not i'm leaning too far out of the window here um but i think it's just filled up with let's say zeros and then over time as you more as you write more data it's um replaced with the actual data and what was the other question ah exposing it to a backup program yeah that could be so i would typically not expose the the file or the the zvol but maybe you put a later you put a uh, file system on it maybe a different one than zfs and then i would back up those files in there not the actual underlying device the the, the zvol but the the data on that zvol separately uh but yeah it's an interesting problem because typically you would do sort of a snapshot the zvol and send the, the the, uh, back the snapshots over to a different pool but just the device it's not much use right because on the other side you would have that device and then what you can't just mount it there you need to always have a pool that this can attach to alan would know more about this uh but if someone else knows an answer there or has done this before uh let us know in a follow-up uh again to feedback at bsd.tv and we'll be happily link this back to this episode. Okay, and our, our final question comes from Sev and it's on FreeBSD and IPA. I hope you're all doing well. I am sending this email out to see what you or others suggest to use for authentication on systems running FreeBSD. I am converting from Linux to FreeBSD now for a few years and I want to start migrating all of my legacy systems over completely to FreeBSD. I'm currently using FreeIPA to authenticate users, but I want to know if there was another type of service that was BSD specific. Any suggestions are appreciated. Thank you for all for what you do and keep up the great work. Yeah, uh, same problem at work here. They have all uh, free IPA infrastructure. It's basically tying into the university's Active Directory Microsoft infrastructure. And that way they can join the Linux boxes into that domain. And for FreeBSD, free IPA is kind of, yeah, at least I couldn't get it to work. Um, you could do it in two ways. You could use regular Kerberos and either what's the one, uh, MIT Kerberos and the other one is uh, blanking on the name at the moment. So that you could use to join the domain. The other one is using, that's what I'm using because I also want to have users and permissions from uh, our LDAP uh, directory in my FreeBSD boxes. Uh, NSLCD, it's not NSCD, it's NSLCD. It's much lighter. That's probably what the L stands for. Uh, so that allows you to create an LDAP.conf. Very simple, just a single file. And that 
where you, that's where you define where your LDAP server is and what kind of um, you know ports and user permissions and some other. It's very very basic, very tiny uh, file, and then you define your uh, your groups, your hosts in the nsswitch.conf, and that's pretty much it. I should probably. If I haven't done that already, I should probably write a little article in the FreeBSD journal about it because that allows you very easily to join at least, you're not joining the domain, but you can at least access the, the users and the permissions and you can do get and pass WD username or ID username and then you get the real ones from the Active Directory rather than the local user accounts. So that I've been using successfully even in the, the bigger IPA infrastructure, but free IPA on FreeBSD, at least in my efforts, my limited ones, I didn't get it to work in, in a corporate environment as I have in the university. Maybe someone else runs this in a major corporation and uh, would be happy to share their expertise or at least how they do it um, because i think the free B free ipa port is either not very current to the ones uh, they have upstream or uh, there's there was something that i couldn't get working at the time but it's been a couple months since i last tried this so try the nslcd route first they have also good documentation on the website which is always good for me because i'm just hey is the documentation okay let's try this um and there should also be tutorials out there in the FreeBSD forums uh, in the tutorial section because there they have a couple of uh, things about joining a domain or using Kerberos in this kind of setup. Okay, uh, I think that's it for today, for this episode. Anything else we forgot to mention at the end? No, I don't think so. Okay, then have a nice rest of your day. And of course, we'll be back next week with another episode of BSD Now.